Hello, and welcome to this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Written by the Victors by Speranza, the Broadway musical Hamilton, and The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. And welcome to episode seven, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells the Story. I'm Alex, and I'm the one who lives. I'm Freya, and it looks like I'm the one who dies. I'm Macy, and I'm the one, I guess, who tells the story. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And today we're talking about historiography, propaganda, and narrative control. Before we go on, I do just have to take this moment to say I'm so sorry. I'm recovering from a cold today, so I'm a little bit croaky. It turns out I'm actually the one who dies. Nobody, Nobody is allowed to die. All right, before we go any further, no dying. This podcast is coming to you from beyond the grave. Oh my gosh. But before we go on, what are we reading, fellow servants? I am still in the depths of a book hangover from having read the last two books in Dorothy Dunnett's Lymond series in about two days, two and a half days. They are about 800 and something pages long. They are very <laughs> dense. They play with your emotions, and I'm still recovering from that. So that's me. <laughs> Why? Well, I I usually, up to that point, I'd read all of the other ones with a gap of at least a year in between because I needed it to recover. But unfortunately, <laughs> the second last one sort of set things up for the last one in such a way that I was like, oh, I'll just... I'll just read the first chapter. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. no. And then, yeah, then it was 24 hours oh, no. later and I had a headache <laughs> and wanted to cry. So, but, you know, it's still an amazing series. I'm just about holding myself back from starting the Niccolo series, which is her other main historical fiction series. Macy, what are you reading? I have been reading, I was reading The Black Tides of Heaven by J.Y. Yang, which actually just got nominated for a Hugo, like, last weekend. Yay! Yes, Yay! congratulations, Jay! It's super Jay is one of my agent siblings, and I am so proud of him. And their stuff is super interesting and fascinating, and there's this great magical world building that they have. Ah, oh, mm -hmm. I love it. And also it's a novella, so you have no excuse not to read it because it's short. Absolutely. I will second that. Dear listeners, if you haven't read Black Tides of Heaven, please go buy those novellas. They're fantastic. They're both great. I will third that on behalf of my mother because I haven't read them <laughs> yet, but I sneakily bought them for my mother for her birthday, made her read them and then took them back. Oh, very good. And she enjoyed them greatly. And I feel like I feel like I understand novella form so much more now. Absolutely. Have you read them? I don't know. So good. Anyway. Same, same. And then I am still in the middle of edit hell, which means that I'm now 22 pages deep in the AO3 listing for the Dragon Age Inquisition fanfiction. <laughs> Whoa. I have nothing to say. I'm Whoa. sorry. Whoa. Yeah. We all look forward to the day when Alex emerges from edit hell and starts reading books again. Yeah, we really do. Alex looks forward <laughs> to that too, honestly. Uh, honestly, here, I'm waiting until Alex emerges and starts rereading the Person of Interest backlist. Oh gosh, do you think I'll go back to Person of Interest? Listen, the day that you come to me and say, I have found this, this original piece of novel from the wider world in a bookshop and read it, I will come to your place and take your temperature. Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> let's move on with the episode, shall we? Yes. So before we get further into the episode, I have a question. What is a story? conspicuous silence. This sounds like an Alex question. This does oh, sound like fuck, an Alex question. <laughs> Resurrect yourself from the grave, Alex. You have to talk now. Now, oh, Revenant, uh, Revenant Roland will now speak. 
Damn it. What is a story? So a story is a collection of words uh-huh. that sometimes has a plot and sometimes is a coffee shop at you. Can I argue with you straight up? Please do. I don't think it necessarily has to have words. I can think of some wordless graphic novels. You are absolutely correct. You are absolutely correct. I can see the point. <laughs> why don't you, since you know so much about stories then, Freya, why don't you answer the question? See, that's just unfair. See, all I can think of is this very circular definition where I'm like, well, a story has a narrative. What is narrative? Well, narrative is story. And we just sort of tie ourselves up in a bow. I feel like our listeners probably have some idea of what a story is. I have a better question. Why are we asking this question? I think that why I put this question here is to kind of frame what we're talking about today. What does it mean to tell a story, right? Like, how how can we talk about who tells a story without saying when something is a story and when it's just information that you are imparting to others? Aha. In that case, I say that everything is stories. Oh my gosh. I do. I okay. do. I honestly believe that everything is everything is stories because everything is getting presented in a certain way and any information that you have that you are conveying to another person, you are making choices about how to present it and who to present it to and in what context to present it. And therefore you are constructing some kind of narrative whether you intend to or not. So Advertisement is, of course, stories. Actually, I totally... You have you have convinced me in my own head now that you are totally right. Because I'm thinking back... Excellent! ...to, to, to my, my misspent youth as a frozen meat salesperson. Oh my god, I did not know this about you. Did tell you not? Me did everything. I not tell you this? I, I, I don't recall you ever referring to your misspent youth as a frozen meat salesman. <laughs> Please tell me everything. Oh, well, we will keep it brief because we have a lot to do in this I episode. disagree. This episode is now about Macy's past as a frozen <laughs> meat salesman. Let me tell you what I have learned about narrative All right. in my misspent youth as a frozen meat salesperson. Jesus. All right, well, we have accomplished our goal of the episode, which is to make Alex say Jesus in a horrified tone. That was more like, odd anyway i had a point i think i'm i'm reeling it back in like a fisherman did you sell fish or was it just i did also sell fish yes in fact i also sold profiteroles and frozen meat (laughs) at the same time the same premises i'm very confused (laughs) listen premises is a generous term premises is a generous term given i was selling this out the back of a van oh jesus this is even better this is definitely what this entire episode is about now oh my gosh people no, no, no. Seize control of the narrative, Macy. Yes. As I was going about my business as an 18-year-old college student selling frozen meat out the back of a van, I encountered <laughs> I encountered many individuals, some of them wearing clothes. And when, <laughs> and when I knocked... So the, the important thing to clarify here... Killed Alex. Is that this this was a door-to-door frozen meat salesperson gig. Okay. Okay. So I would knock on people's doors, they would answer their doors, sometimes they would answer them in interesting ways. But when you are trying to sell somebody a thing, you are basically constructing a narrative in their head by which they believe that they have a hole in their life that is the exact shape of the thing you are selling them. Exactly, yes. I was going to say, this sounds like the entirety of Alex's second book. Yes, it does. And yes, it's that. It is so, imparting information is a story. Yes, you're right. But 
I'm going to forcefully underail us and ask you two what you think are some types of storytellers. Well, the first one that I on our list, and this is interesting because when you're thinking about any information conveyed from one person to another being a story, can you have a story that is, I guess, not necessarily without an audience, but is just something that you are telling yourself? And I was thinking about diarising and journaling, and if somebody is writing a diary or a journal solely for themselves, whether it's a story or not depends on whether you're intending to look back on it, so if there's anybody who's ever in, intended to read it, or is there a value in simply telling yourself a story of what happened that day or having your reflections as a process rather than something that somebody's going to see. And that's different to a memoir or autobiography where it's definitely being written for an audience. Then let's narrow the scope of this episode a little bit. Let's accept as written that we believe that pretty much anything is a story. And let's come back down to talking about narrative stories and tales as we as authors think of them. Yeah, so memoir and autobiography is obviously a type then. Yes, so, so the four types that I kind of came up with writing this down earlier was the types of storytellers are the storyteller who is telling you their own story. They're writing it down or they're talking to you. Then there is a journalist who is recording something for a deliberate audience for a purpose. And then we have historian who is kind of telling a story in an academic frame. They are presenting the story as a fact that they have studied and proven. Whether or not that's true, we will be talking about later. And then the number four type of storyteller is the storyteller. The narrative entertainer, it doesn't matter if it happened that way, as long as it's truer than truth, to quote Alex at herself. To quote an amazing, <laughs> illustrious author, Alexandra Rowland. Alexandra Rowland, who you may have heard of, great author, read, read all of her published novels, oh wait. Fuck. First of all, fuck you. <laughs> Secondly... <laughs> So, so there, there's a little taxonomy for you, our audience, because we know how you love taxonomies. Yeah, we are us. We could not do an episode without a taxonomy. This, this is very, very true. But we have three examples we're going to be talking about in this episode that present some different ways of telling stories, and all of which are kind of very conscious that they are telling stories. And I believe Alex was going to talk to us a bit about the first one. Yes. So the first tentpole of the episode is a Stargate Atlantis fanfiction by Speranza called Written by the Victors. And I loved this fanfic. So I've never... Okay, I actually have seen a couple episodes of Stargate Atlantis. It really doesn't matter if you have or haven't. Yeah. I've seen quite a lot of Stargate SG-1, actually, ah. a long time ago. I knew what a Stargate was and how it worked. That would be kind of the only context that I would otherwise need. Mm -hmm. I think that if you went into it not even knowing what a Stargate is, then you would maybe have some trouble with contextual things about why certain plot points are important. Stargates are wormholes in a box that you can walk through. Yeah. Done. Yeah. That's all you need. And you can dial them like a phone. Yep. Yeah. So the amazing thing about Written by the Victors is that there is a core, the core plot of the, the story, which is told as a flat narrative in third person this happened this happened this happened and then around that there is a frame story which is told by no fewer than 36 unreliable <laughs> narrators who are all excerpts from historical texts that were written after the events 
of the story took place. And like all good academics and historians, they sometimes argue with one another, yes. which is amazing. They argue, they disagree, they interpret events in different ways, they analyze the actors in the, the historical event as having different motivations. And it's super, super interesting. It's a beautiful example of unreliable narrators. It's a beautiful example of narrative acrobatics. I want to steal this structure. I want to take it for myself. That's how good it is. I'm looking at it and I want you to picture a magpie looking at a shiny quarter on the ground and just like bouncing around it and going, oh my God, oh my God. It's so good. I want to take it for myself. And there's this amazing segment partway through where this text is discussing, there's like single sentences discussing how the genius of King John are coming up with this new economic setup and this, this marketplace to fuel the new, basically the planet secedes from Earth and they need to fuel a new economy. And it's just single sentences cut off in the middle, like sometimes mid-word, interspersed with sentences of John being completely useless. Yes. And all of the good ideas coming from Ronan. <laughs> Alex, when you were when you were reading this, I remember you said something that I found interesting because you came to us and said, oh, I'm getting a bit nervous when I'm halfway through because the whole point of it is that obviously the history being written by the victors yeah. and all of the points of view that we were getting were from Earth. Yes. It was all Earth society. And you said, this is making me nervous because clearly it's foreshadowing that the Earth is going to be the victors. Yes. I was so and scared. So what, <laughs> and one of my favorite things that happens in it is that once... <gasps> the people in Atlantis yeah. actually do like finally secede and cut yeah. contact. You stop hearing any voices from Earth at all yes. in the narrative structure. And it gets replaced by these uh, you know, legends and stories which are equally as unreliable and equally as coloured by somebody's bias and somebody's way of building a history. Yes. But they are suddenly the voices of the victors. That's what's left at the end. It's just the, the Atlanteans and the Pegasus. This is why I was so excited, Alex, for you to get to the very end of this pick, because the last few pieces, the last seven <sighs> epilogue pieces are poems and they are narrative epics in the style of the Greeks and then they devolve into songs that replace some words with words that don't make yes. sense to us. Yes, linguistic and evolution, then, linguistic then, evolution. Yes, and then by number six none of the words are in English and by number seven the letters aren't letters anymore I... and it's just an image of this alien text and I died. I literally just got chills remembering that. I it died. was so good. It was mm. Ah. Mm. And okay. <laughs> so that's the end of the episode, right? We don't need to talk about anything. No, Freya, <laughs> we just need to sit in silence for a while and think about it. Freya, were you in this fandom when this was posted? Yes, I was. Do you remember the Ars Atlante? Uh, no, I possibly was not that deep into the fandom. Explain. So I was, and this fanfic was posted, and immediately there was a reaction among the community, and people left comments on LiveJournal going as they do, oh, what a great fanfic, this is amazing, and praising the author. And then somebody wrote a, I don't even know what was first, but they wrote a poem or they wrote a proclamation in the style of the fic, to the fic. So people began writing their own meta-narratives as responses to this fic. That's so fucking beautiful. Well, this kind of... And this kind of fic it absolutely invites that kind of oh, thing absolutely. because it's almost, it's a piece of fan fiction that shows you what fan fiction is for. Yes. It basically just says you can take a story 
and you can take your own voice and you can take your own point of view on it and they are all they all make it richer and they all make it more interesting like you know another type of fan fiction you can just take and go okay well i'm going to write somebody else's point of view or i'm going to write some fake journalism or a fake history report based on this story and this story took an existing canon told a story and then suddenly erupted its own fanfic universe around it it did and it had it had songs it had multi-part songs it had poetry it had art like people were recording things for it and then people recorded a six-hour podfic with i believe all 36 historians and voices in the story were a separate narrator oh my god i remember that i remember the, the podfic coming out and so this is who tells the story well in fan fiction the answer is we do and that's, to me, part, part of why I feel so strongly in this podcast about respecting fanfiction as a genre of its own with its own strengths, because this is so unique and beautiful. Mm. And one of the other fanfics I was thinking of when we were talking about this that does this really well is um, Steve Rogers at 100. Have you read that? Have not. I haven't. So it's called Steve Rogers at 100, Celebrating Captain America on Film, and it's got six authors as in, like, actual people who contributed to the fanfic. And it does a story, it's a story that is structured around all the different ways that Hollywood has tried to tell the Captain America story. And so it's got, and so it has fake film critiques and, you know, fake film posters. I'm extremely And and so, and it does a similar type of thing where it gives you this (laughs) film critique, gives you the film posters it gives you snatches of dialogue from these fake films and it's interspersed with academia and things like that but it also has within it a a more straightforward narrative of steve experiencing all of these movies that were made of his life in the present day (laughs) and and how, how he feels about them it's brilliant we should absolutely link to it and it tells them all these ways from pulp fiction movies to something with Mel Gibson in it that was more about, you know, the war. And then there's this amazing, amazing picture that has Channing Tatum as Captain America. (laughs) And then it goes all the way down to the porn parody, which is called Twinks, Justice and the American Way. Amazing. It is a beautiful story. And it does a very similar thing with that interspersing of different types of narration in order to comment on how the fact that you cannot control how your own story is told as shown by Steve, and how he feels about these various fictional portrayals of his own life. And I think that this is one of the things I love about the very multimedia approach to storytelling in these stories. It's, it encourages the audience to ask questions and interrogate what's actually happening in a very similar way to how unreliable narrators can do. And it kind of makes you conscious that there is a narrator yes. as an audience member. Hmm. and. I mean, there's always a narrator, right? Like every book you pick up and read, there is a narrator. But as readers, that's part of the contract we kind of unofficially sign with the author. We will believe that we are looking through a window and you will tell us a lovely story and we will forget that the window is made of something. Uh, Most of the time. Most of the time. And that's why I'm saying like this is one particular way that you can draw attention to that fact. And on that, I wanted to bring in our next tentpole, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yes. I love the fifth season. Have I told you all that yet? I, I don't think you ever have ever mentioned fifth season. That seems unlike you, Macy. Please that go That does on. seem unlike me. Let's talk about the fifth season. And let's talk about the way that the fifth season gives you a prologue. And on the very first page, it gives you five paragraphs of a story, like a book would give you. 
And then the very last line says, but you need context. Let's try the ending again, writ continentally. So it tells you up front, I am the narrator and I am going to change how I tell the story until I get you to understand what I want. Yes. And I remember reading that prologue. I started out, you know, curled up, comfortably relaxed. And I got to that line and I sat up absolutely straight. And I was like, you have my attention. You're doing something weird with narrative. And I am all about that. And show me what you're doing. I just have so much respect for Nora Jemison as an author. I also have a lot of feelings about who gets to be called a genius in our narrative. And women don't. And women of color definitely don't. But yeah. she is a genius. Absolutely. This book is a work of genius. And yes, strong feelings. And it's definitely doing more than one thing at a time with the narration as well. Like the juggling act she manages is amazing. And especially when you get to the later books, yes. reflecting back on how she managed to set everything up and what she managed to do with it. And you don't question it because it's just done so expertly. So there's the fact of the three separate narrations happening in the first book. And you're never quite sure who you should be trusting. No You're one. never quite sure how the stories are related to each other, but you know that they are. And one of my favourite things is the fact that she uses second person yes. and, and withholds from you for a really, really long time the fact that there is actually, the second person is actually first person, is actually somebody speaking directly to the character, but there is a a character behind that narration as well. We just don't know who they are for a long time. I kind of had an instinct about that. I was like, me too. But I think that's because I'm so sensitive to first person narration. And I have obviously spent so much time thinking about it and getting it elbow deep in it. And so when it went into second person, I was like, okay, but who is addressing me? Mm -hmm. Who is saying you? Well, you will find out later. I know. I'm really looking forward to it. But that, that is the thing that, that Fifth Season does, is there is the storyteller who is speaking to you, and we, we kind of know who the you is, because that's the main character of the book. But there are other sections when the storyteller isn't present, and we're not quite sure why they're not. But also, even within the world of the fifth season, the world building has a particular relationship with storytelling as a means of rules and law surviving cataclysms. Yes. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit in our uh, post-apocalypse episode. Right. The role, the role of a bard and the role of a storyteller in uh, a world where that you need a way of transmitting information. And I think that it's interesting because the characters trust those stories absolutely implicitly, but we as an audience have far more questions than they do. I think it's because we're coming at it as an audience and we are expecting to be entertained, whereas the people in the world of the story are just busy surviving. And obviously you can see there is a hunger for story, as there always is, but the, the value of the story for them is, will this help us survive the next season? And so, but whereas we sit back and we reflect and we say, who is talking to us? Where did this come from? And they are just looking for the truth. They are desperate for the parts of truth that can be used. They're not sitting there going, oh, it doesn't really matter if it's true, if it's a nice story. They're going, will, are we going to die? Tell us how not to die. And I think that in, is it book two or book three where we meet the lowest character? Uh, I can't quite recall. Hey, Alex. Alex, hey, Alex, you need to read more because there are chants. I know, I know. Like, I identified that there was a chant in this book, like, I think halfway through the, <laughs> the prologue, possibly. I was like, I, I recognize this. I can feel the edges of them. But the thing is that Fifth Season does a similar thing to what Written by the Victors does just a lot later, which is the historiographical layers. Right. Who is telling the true story of the Orogenes, right? Where did they come from? What's the actual scientific truth? What's the origin myth? And who is right about it? 
and who is who is telling the story why because in this book if you haven't read the fifth season and the sequels there is a is it fair to say a race of characters that are basically enslaved and they have particular magical powers and are enslaved for that reason and the question of why and how kind of echoes throughout the three books yes and it's not till you get to the third book that suddenly the narration just flips and jumbles itself again and you start to get some of the answers that you've been looking for for the first two books in a story that tells itself slowly and in conversation with the climax of the i guess present day narrative which is great because i think that's how you that's obviously how you withhold tension across a trilogy like that is that you set up a lot of questions start sort of kind of teasing people with some suggestions of what could be going on but withhold the actual truth of that story or at least the main truth of that story until the end would you say that between the books they were shaking up the narrative oh, oh dear you're fired might you say there was a seismic shift the podcast is cancelled yep go home <laughs> macy you have to be the one who dies now turn off your mic Oh, me. Go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. But I, I think that it, it does raise a lot of questions about who's writing the histories and why. And I think that that's a question that we have in general, right? Is history unreliable? To what extent are historians unreliable? And how can you tell? When are they tainted by their biases? Yes, always, all of them, 100% yes. <laughs> the answer to all of your questions is yes. Historians are, of course, unreliable because they're humans telling a story they're humans. All humans are unreliable narrators. And since history is written by the victors, there is going to be a... Well, here's the thing about historians. Historians have to eat, and they have to pay their bills, and so someone has to pay them a wage. And the way that you get someone to pay you money to do history is to convince them that the history that you're studying is useful to them in some way. And you can leverage story and history for political gain or for propaganda or for a million other purposes. But that's why you see that whatever the history that is written or that is produced by a time will reflect to a certain extent the values of that time. So it's always when you're thinking about looking back, you have to look at where the gaps are. And this is where all of these things to do with looking back and saying, well, where are the stories of the people of colour? Where are the stories of the queer people? There's not that there was nothing there, it's just that there was no history officially written about them because the historians had to eat and that wasn't what was important it's to them. It's not, though, uh, just about what is important to a society. It's about active propaganda. Yes. Mm -hmm. I visited the Smithsonian African American History Museum a little while back with about 40 of my co-workers, and I'm not American. There were only two of us who knew who Emmett Till was. Seriously? I'm not kidding. Well, I don't know who Emmett Till is, so you're going to have to uh, tell me. You're not American, so that's fine. You don't have to. He was a very important figure and a very important victim of the pre-civil rights movement in America. And it was shocking to me that this was clearly something that was not covered in basic American education on history. I think what is, yeah, what is taught as history is such a, and even, yeah, if you're thinking about in schools and educational curriculum, is such an interesting idea. I didn't do much history in in high school because it was not sold to me well when I was in year seven, basically. It was, <laughs> they thought, okay, we'll start at the beginning. And so they did like bog men and what is history? And I was like, well, this is boring as shit. 
and I went and did geography instead because it was about interesting societies that were currently alive. But then if you think about what was actually taught, I went to a, a private school, fairly prosperous, and history was mostly European history. Mm -hmm. In primary school we'd done some Australian history and it was all about who sailed here, who nailed a plate to a tree, who <clears throat> killed some Aborigines. Colonialism! Colonialism! Yay! And then, you know, the gold rush and all that kind of thing. But it was very much European history. <laughs> or colonialism! Yay! The, the question of when historians are unreliable and when the narratives need to be reclaimed lead us quite neatly into, I think, our next tentpole. Yes, and it's relevant to what we were just talking about, essentially. Our third tentpole is the musical Hamilton by the amazing and also definite genius Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> and so this is obviously where the title of the episode comes from, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. And I'm pretty sure it is an inescapable part of the cultural landscape at this point, but the short version is that it is a narrative about Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, and the Founding Fathers, and it is told in a musical that is largely hip-hop in style by an all-people-of-colour cast. And so essentially it is a way of reclaiming a narrative that is about white people and white slave owners uh, in the musical style and presented by the people of the historically oppressed group. So it is very much about who gets to tell that story, and if you get to tell that story, how do you get to comment on it, and how do you get to stake a claim on a piece of history that is not, up to this point, being for you or about you. Yeah, almost entirely people of colour. Oh yes, sorry. Apart from one or two, yes. Apart from the, yes, the king, deliberately, very deliberately. Yes, King, king George is deliberately play, played by a white person. But I think that the, the fascinating thing about the musical, which I'm tragically behind the rest of civilization and listening to, I know. Yeah, you just listened to it today for the first time, right? I listened to it today. For the, look, I, I have issues with infidelity as in narratives, so I, I had been holding off, but for you two, because I love you very much, I listened to the thing. I don't believe in like laughing at someone for being quote unquote behind. You listen to it <laughs> when you listen to it. I'm so glad that you listened to it and now we That's can talk bad. about it. So what did you think? I, I really loved so many things that it did. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the music a bit later, I think. But I particularly love the way that it comments on telling stories and history and narrative uh, from multiple different characters' point of views, particularly the different ways that the different characters obsess with narrative, the way that Hamilton obsesses with legacy, and the way that Eliza instead talks about narrative and her presence as almost a passive thing at first and then takes control and agency of like and then what she's control. going to be involved with and i love it it's it's <laughs> extremely good yes freya i think you had more thoughts yeah I was gonna say, thinking about what the sources were for the musical as well and obviously that's part of historiography mm -hmm. is what are your sources and there's this sense of obviously the further back you go to the primary sources on the one hand the cleaner your history is but on the second hand primary sources are obviously enormously unreliable because they have so much inherent bias yes and obviously hamilton the biography by Ron Kerno, I think it was, is what Lin-Manuel Miranda was using as his main place of finding the story. But there's also... Libretto! Yes. But he also talks um, in some of his annotations and things like that about other things that he looked up. And and I went back and, and read also, because I was interested in this, all the letters between Hamilton and Lawrence, <laughs> which, he, which is, again is where he got certain bits of phrasing and pieces of information and things like that. And a letter is obviously you know, a story written for one person that has now become 
part of the greater narrative and that it's this important historical source. Well, and also, Freya, I believe that you had a piece of fan fiction or a piece of <laughs> fan poetry. Po yeah, fan, fan poetry. That I, I, let put it this way, I know why you were reading the Lawrence letters. Yes, <laughs> it's true. I wrote an incredibly overambitious thing for Yuletide, which was essentially a missing song. But also the the fascinating thing that comes again back to the Ars Atlante and the reinterpretation that fanfic kind of opens the door to was another of Alex's agent siblings, Marco Shiro, recording it. Yes, yes. And his reactions to it. And this is the kind of cycle of storytelling that I really adore when a story gets passed from hand to hand and shaped by the hands that touch it. I mean, yes, that's a beautiful way of putting what was essentially Mark, like, face-palming for 45 minutes about all the dick jokes <laughs> that I wrote. <laughs> a beautiful cycle of story and dick jokes. <laughs> yes, you should have seen the face he made when I told him that I was friends with you at Confusion. <laughs> One day I will meet him in person and I'll be like, I would like to apologise for all the dick jokes. <laughs> Don't worry, the scribes will link it, dear listeners, if you wish to read the dick jokes. Yeah, there's lots of them. I counted. There's about 35. I uh, dare say they will also link Mark's video. Of, yes, of yes video. that is a beautiful way to experience it. And actually, speaking of that Ars Atlantica thing, there is also a recorded podcast or a podfic of it by multiple different uh, people. So they got someone different to do each voice of each character. And that is beautiful also. So if you look at the AO3 page for it, it's linked under our related, related works. Wait, there's a multiple voices of yours? Yes. That's what I'm saying. That's cool. Yes. I was so happy. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Really good. Anyway, back to actually Hamilton and not my version of Dick Joke Hamilton. But actually, I wanted to ask you though about this note that I was fascinated by mm -hmm. about another fandom that's kind of dabbles in historiography which is black sales yes and i wanted to link this back to hamilton because that what you were saying macy about legacy and obviously hamilton and washington being obsessed with their legacy throughout the musical and aaron burr who is kind of he is the, the framing narrator of the musical he at the end gets his own reflection on his legacy and the line that i really love there it says history obliterates in every picture it paints it paints me with all my mistakes and then a few lines down it says now i'm the villain in your history and so it's Burr who has told this story. And so we've gotten his point of view of Alexander Hamilton the whole way through. All of these little introductory things, you get his point of view of what Hamilton is. You know, this sense of him being an upstart and an immigrant and all these different things. And now Burr is finally reflecting on what history is going to say about him and the fact that he, despite not really controlling the narrative but being the most driving voice in the narrative, is now left in a position of history only going to see his bad side and so what black i think that's the point is is that history you never get to write your own history no exactly and that says that you, even if you can try and for burr who is a character obsessed with control and being very mm. careful about what he says you know the others are the ones who are talking about oh i want to be remembered for this remembered for this he's the one who seems to be trying to leave as small and as careful a paper trail of his life as possible and he's still the one who gets saddled with the, with the label of villain. So how this relates to Black Sails, which is a TV show which I became moderately obsessed with last year. It is amazing. Everybody should watch it. Black Sails is a TV show that is fan fiction prequel to Treasure Island. And it basically takes as its story, it takes the character of Long John Silver, 
and the fact that in Treasure Island, Silver refers to some adventures that he had and refers to this character of Captain Flint. And it tells the story of the pirates. Captain Flint being one part of our darling OT3? Yes. Yes. I know this much from gifts from Tumblr. Yes, yes. There's, there's, there, look, this is a show that has multiple <laughs> canonical OT3s. So, and what I tell people when I'm trying to sell it is you have to push through the first season, which is kind of HBO-y, sensationally, a little bit of gratuitous rape scenes and things. So you do have to sort of, I would be careful and look for some content warnings if you want. But the first season isn't quite sure what it's doing apart from being Pirates of the Caribbean for grown-ups. But then you hit the second season and it turns around and says, well, now that we've got you in with all of the battles and the clothes and the interesting characters, this is actually a show about a lot of angry queers trying to overthrow the government, essentially. <laughs> I am into that. That is my brand. Hashtag it me. It us, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But because it is a story that is very self-aware of its own status as fan fiction, and it also involves characters who are real people from history, so Calico Jack uh, and Anne mm. Bonny and like a whole other handful of real, and Edward Teach, so a whole lot of real people from history who were pirates and also some people who were around at that time in history. And so it knows a lot about what it's doing with this historical meta-narrative and the characters are very self-aware about it as well. So Jack Rackham, Calico Jack, he's has a lot of interesting things to say about story and making a story around yourself. But obviously both Flint and Long John Silver turn into people who will wield their own narrative in order to exert power. So they build up a sense of Captain Flint as this amazing pirate and he's ruthless and Long John Silver starts to emerge as the series goes through as again a character that the person is building around themselves. And it's this incredible idea of how do you live your life and how do you present yourself so that history sees you a certain way. And a lot of what they are fighting against is this narrative of the pirates as just being evil and bad and a lot of what Flint is doing is saying that, you know, we are being left as the villain. Somebody has to be the villain. They're building this monster story around us. Mm -hmm. And so it has a very similar thing to Hamilton where making someone the villain in the narrative is a way of conquering them. It is a way of winning. Is by saying, I am the victor. I am writing the story. And as I write you as the villain, then I have won forever because this is the story that's going to be told. I feel like that that's also a way of winning if it gets you what you want. And that's something that these characters wield, right? Is if, if you say that by being the villain, I achieve my end goals and that's sufficient for me, that is powerful for yourself. So the, the question of seizing control of your own story as almost a tool, it comes back to, to kind of fan fiction as narrative Marxism and seizing the <laughs> means of production. Yes. Yes. And I have so many feelings about this because fanfic is so popular and so powerful, especially among people who don't see their stories in fiction so and in history you have yeah. history right because you have this this structure which privileges certain stories over others for example we don't see that much queer representation in fiction and so we identify characters who we can headcanon that they're queer and then fan fiction says i'm going to take these for myself and I'm going to tell the stories that I need to be told. And I think that is so amazing and so great. But I think that it's also part of a wider tradition and a much older tradition of communal storytelling and mm -hmm. communal ownership of what a story is. Like if you look back at how many different versions of Snow White there were, 
tracing back through history or more modern community storytelling means like D&D or Tumblr. Yes, yes. It's actually, it's an incredibly recent phenomenon for, for copyright. You know, like this is just something we have invented within the last couple hundred years where it seems like one person owns the story that they make up rather than the community owns it, rather than saying that the audience has some kind of ownership over the story that they hear. And so fandom exists in this space that is, you know, obviously it's fair use, it's creative rights and things like that. And because of that, you do get the development of a shared fanon. And that's a really interesting part of fandom, I think, in that people are storytelling around a central idea. And nobody's got, you know, a claim or a copyright on that central idea because they're all coming to it as fans who are just doing something for the joy of it and it's all just transformative works. But if you have enough communal storytelling around a central idea, you get the crystallization of certain themes that everyone starts to accept as fanon, essentially. Well, here's a question then. How is that any different from the way that historians interrogate sources? Are historians storytellers just like we are? with an academic hat on or are they scientists discovering the truth i think the former Uh uh-huh and i realize that i am biased in my perception because i don't feel like there is any such thing as objective truth in science (laughs) for example like we're always making new discoveries in science so how can we ever be really sure that we finally found the real true complete and correct answer well i would argue that the point of science is that you are prepared to uh, adjust what you might think of as the truth if you are presented with new evidence. Like, so the scientific method is saying, yeah, I think it's very similar to, to history in that sense, because obviously if you're working as a historian, you are telling stories, but you are, if you're doing it properly, always prepared to rewrite what's come before if something new comes to light. I, I think actually like both of these things can be true at the same time. Yes, I think that's what I was getting I at. Think, I think that we're both correct, yes, because you can identify what what Freya was saying. But on the other hand, we're always going to be looking at the events of history through the context of our present experiences. Well, so so here to me is why I would make a different make a differentiation between a scientist and a historian, and I would put a historian firmly on the storyteller side myself. So to me, there is a certain shape to what a story is. And there are many different narrative shapes, as we've discussed before, in different cultures, but there is a narrative shape to a satisfying story. And so we will frequently say, we'll we'll see things in the news and we'll say, I could never put that in a book, my editor wouldn't believe me. Right. And the thing is that if you look back in many history books, not all of them, but many of them, you can sense the edges they have sanded off to make the history fit the story shape that people will digest. Whereas with science, it has jagged edges if you're doing it right. Yes. And that to me is why I say that uh, modulo, there is no true thing under the sun. Science talks in facts because facts are not shaped in a digestible story way. Whereas history and the long history of history as an oral thing that has to be memorized and passed between people and has to kind of connect in your soul to be absorbed and learned from is far closer to telling stories around the campfire than it is to eating this berry and eating that berry and see which evening you have a really bad time. Something you just said made me think that I have another answer for the question that you asked at the beginning. What is a story? And the answer that I have now is it's a pattern. Hmm. 
because humans are purpose-built, are evolved and designed to recognize patterns and to use those patterns to build new patterns and to put things in boxes. We love putting things in boxes. The three of us especially love putting <laughs> things in boxes. <laughs> There's an amazing book called The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human by Jonathan Gottschall, which I desperately recommend to you. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite nonfiction books. And it's all about what stories do for us and the evolutionary advantage that stories give us mm -hmm. and how we developed brains that use stories as tools and as building blocks to get us to this point where we live in houses with heating and air conditioning and refrigerators and things in our fridge that come from all over the world, right? Like we have this vast economy, this worldwide trade network and culture and civilization because of stories. I would agree with, I would agree with that in terms of pattern, I think, because I think it's sometimes difficult to tell when you're looking at something whether, you know, do I feel that this is a story, yes or no? And I think we always have a gut instinct for that. And sometimes we may not be able to explain it properly, but we can definitely analyze something that is presented as a story that we think, well, the story in this was unsatisfying or the narrative was unsatisfying. And that's usually because it was just presented as a series of vaguely linked dots and there is no pattern. And that's what's to do with satisfying. And so I think is what you were saying, Maxi, with we are presenting a story of history. We want there to be a pattern. And so what's happening is that anybody who is writing a story, and I guess by extension, anybody who is writing history is trying to pull that pattern to the foreground and everything that doesn't fit the pattern, everything that's just not quite the right colour or just a bit of an off note, that's the stuff that's being sanded back. Exactly. And that's why it's important to ask who's telling the story. That's why that matters above anything to me, particularly when reading nonfiction. Yes, because what is their motivation? What yes. reasons do they have to be telling the story? What hunger do they have that needs them to tell this story? And I think to me, a fascinating interaction in many, this, this happens a bunch in movies as well as in some of the examples we've quoted so far, is examples of when the character is aware that they are telling a story, when they break the fourth wall. Yes. Yeah. And the interactions you can have where they can acknowledge that you are questioning their motivation for telling you the story. Since you just listened to Hamilton today, I want to know if you have heard this piece of trivia. At the end of the very last song, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells the Story, Eliza is singing about the ways in which she worked her whole life for 50 years after Alexander Hamilton's death to advance his legacy and to to make sure that he was remembered the way that he should be remembered. Mm -hmm. At the very end of that song, in the stage musical, the lights come up and she sees the audience and gasps. And it ends. Oh, I did not know that. That's lovely. Isn't that lovely? That's so lovely. And this is the thing. Also, in Hamilton, the thing that really struck me most of all as a who tells the story moment was the dialogue between the Skylar sisters. Mm. In it, it's not it's not a dialogue per se, but the the contrast between helpless and satisfied. And that's where it comes back to unreliable narration mm -hmm. because it's telling the sa exact same scene, exactly the same, from a different point of view which is obviously a very well-known narrative trope. And one of the things that I wanted to briefly mention was the idea of the Rashomon principle, which comes from the Kurosawa film Rashomon, which I have not seen. But it's this idea that a, a situation is always going to be seen differently by different witnesses who are present. And 
the most, the example that I know the best is the Rashomon job, which is an episode of Leverage where three characters tell the same story from their past, all from their point of view. And obviously different, they remember it differently, and so you see different parts of it happening differently to hilarious effect. And that's what's happening in Satisfied and Helpless. But the other thing that I came back to when I was listening to this, because I wasn't watching, I was just listening, is the musical cues as well. Mm-hmm. There are very, very different musical styles between the two sisters. Tell us more about this. Throughout the whole of Hamilton, they use musical cues to great effect. And I think this is something I, I've spent a lot of time in various choirs memorizing a lot of music. So I kind of have a brain that pattern matches on melodies. Yeah, you definitely notice music more often than I do. This was the thing when we were watching Person of Interest together a while back. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> I, I noticed there's this four note melodic refrain in Person of Interest that shows up precisely when the machine is about to do something creepy. And so I would notice and tell Alex, oh, the machine's about to do something. And she'd be like, what are you talking about? How did you know that? I completely didn't notice it. It was just background noise. To yeah, me. and Hunger bad. Games has the same. The is it was it da 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 in yeah, Hunger Games, Mockingjay, and in and in Hamilton they use a Beatles song for the for the king, and there is also the the harmony from that shows up in. Some of the war scenes, when they're being particularly ninja-like, they have the James Bond themes harmony underlying. And it's fascinating because what it does subconsciously is it reminds your brain that you should be relating what you're seeing or listening to to this other story that you know. So you're being told a story on a level you don't necessarily realize. And even more so than that, it is different for every listener because every listener will react and respond to different auditory cues. So I've been told that Hamilton has a lot of referential pieces to hip-hop and rap and R&B and styles that I'm less familiar with, so I wouldn't catch them. But people who knew those areas would be experiencing those songs in a different way to how I was. So it's not just who's telling the story, but who are they telling it to? Because the audience modulates the story in their own head, and I think it's really cool. That is very cool. But we were talking a little bit about when characters are conscious that they're telling a story. I'm trying so hard not to just like start blathering about my own work right now. <laughs> like I'm not going to be that person. Well, that's all right. We've talked most. We've talked about historians. I'm going to leap in then and let, maybe talk about one of the other taxonomies yes. very quickly. Then, definitely. So Tell us about that. A, yes, so I want to talk about journalism and journalists yes. as a way of storytelling as a type of storyteller. And I'm going to refer for this one to the Newsflash trilogy. So, have you guys read any of them? Or I think I read any a of bit the of the first. Is that Mira Grant? Yeah, so Mira Grant, which is one of Shauna Maguire's pen names. Treya? This is one of yes. your agent siblings. Yes, yes, Shauna Maguire slash Mira Grant and I share an agent. <laughs> anyway, Mira Grant's Newsflash series is a trilogy about a pair of journalists who are they're bloggers essentially and is about what happens when they go on the campaign trail as political journalists for the first presidential election in America after the zombie apocalypse. <gasps> Okay, I do need to read this. <laughs> yeah, it's set, it's set in a world that's very much an after. It's about, okay, the apocalypse has happened, we've controlled some stuff. There's still very much a huge amount of clear and present danger, but it's about that attempt to start to scrape together a functioning society again to the point where they're having elections. And because the main characters are journalists, 
there is, is a bit of interspersing with blog posts or articles or things like that. And it talks a bit about the different purposes of journalism. So if you're telling it for portraying information, so one of mm-hmm. the characters, Georgia, she is predominantly trying to convey information, whereas Sean, her adoptive brother, um, is a type of, he's a more entertaining kind of journalist. So his whole thing is that he goes out and pokes zombies with a stick and then gets YouTube <laughs> footage, of, footage of himself running away from them, essentially. But because of that's inbuilt in the story, it always makes you think, what is the purpose of the story that you're telling? And because of that, the first book, which is in first person from George's point of view, you don't necessarily start to question it until a little way into the book, but especially by the second book, which is from a different person's point of view, you immediately have to start thinking about, okay, this is someone who is telling me a story who is a professional shaper of the truth. I now need to think back and think what was actually missing from that story that I was being told. So journalism as storytelling has a lot to do with that. Who are you telling it to? Why are you telling it? And to what extent can you trust any one journalistic voice? See, that's fascinating because I feel like the fifth season does some very similar things with the way that Shaffer, the kind of guardian character, treats and talks to the two different little girls in his care. I was rereading the first book after having read the later books and it's very interesting to see the difference between how Shaffer talks to it's Nassim, is it, the later girl, and Demaya, and what he's trying to get them to do, how he's trying to get them to act. Yeah, it's true. He has a different purpose in what he's in each time, but he's also, to a certain extent, shaping the story that he's telling them based on the person that they are. Right. Based on his ability to read their personality and what will motivate them. And I wonder almost if we missed a fifth category of pedagogical teachers telling stories. I don't know, maybe it's not a separate category, but I think it's something to be aware of is that sometimes you have a character who is shaping a story in order to educate. And yeah, they've got that overlap of are you shaping it in order to convey information or are you shaping it in order to make them buy into your version of the story? I think there's something in pedagogy which is you've got on the one hand are you teaching someone to be questioning and to are you teaching them how to learn obviously this is all just educational theory or are you teaching them a a story of history or a story of the truth that you want them to accept and definitely Schaffer is doing the, the latter yeah and I was going to say like I think that that teachers and journalists would be kind of subsets of the same larger category because as you said it's a difference between giving someone information to educate them versus giving them education that you have shaped. Exhibit A. In Fox News. Oh, oh God. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> Fox News is not trying to get you to question the reality they're presenting. They're trying to show you very small slivers of reality and convince you they've shown right. you a whole picture. But, I mean, I think that all mediums that tell stories are trying to change you in some way. Yes. And I think that this comes to my next question is, if you're looking at particularly written stories, if you have something that was written for the purpose of history versus the purpose of journalism versus the purpose of just writing a diary for yourself, does that mm. intrinsically change the stories? Are they shaped differently? Well, yes. That's what we're talking about with 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 keeping keeping a journal is not you're not necessarily concerned, depending on if you you know if you're obsessed with your legacy or not. If you're just writing it for yourself, then you're not thinking about the patterns and the shape of a story. If you're writing letters, you're not concerned about patterns, but except in as much as what the one person you're writing them to. So the medium obviously alters it. Also, the audience shapes the story as well, especially mm-hmm. if you, the storyteller, have an awareness of who your audience is, you're naturally going to 
change certain things about your story. And it may be as innocuous as word choice. For example, most people don't swear in front of their grandmothers. <laughs> you you look at the audience that you have and then you choose the story that you're telling. So if I am sitting in front of my grandmother and telling a story about a wild party that I went to when I was in college, I'm probably going to leave some details out because I want my grandmother to have a certain view of me. So I, I wanted to come back again to how, uh, to, to one step above telling the story, to how do we as writers tell stories about storytellers? How do we write epistolary stories or like written by the victors, stories told from the point of view of arguing historians? And what do we use those techniques for? Why, would, why do we choose to do that? I would argue that we use voice very yes. strongly in this. So you mentioned epistolary or epistolary fic. I think that that's something where the you have to have an incredibly strong voice because you're admitting up front you are writing a storyteller, you are writing a very biased narrative. Mm -hmm. So I think the use of voice, and that's the same in those, all the things that are written by the victors, it either had an academic voice or it had a history book voice. You could get a sense of the tone of the history book mm -hmm. that existed beyond this tiny paragraph that she'd written. Yes, I think first and foremost you're right. You. I studied history until I was 18, and I did actually do, at that point, some historiographical work. And one of the pieces that I did was a long-form examination of different historians writing about Mao Zedong and what happened after the Chinese Revolution. And they all definitely had their own separate voice. And it does make me think that if I was using this in a story, which I haven't really done, it's almost a stronger, more polished version of a multi-POV because your each of your POVs is conscious that they're being listened to. Right? They don't have a they, they have a chance to kind of decide what story they're telling. And that's part of it, I think. Yeah, there has to be a self-awareness. I think if you're telling a story about storytellers, then there is a self-awareness to the narrative that's not there if, for example, you're just writing a very close third person where, you know, they're so entrenched in their voice and they're just all their messy emotions and things. It's just what's happening to them, how do they feel about it? How are you writing it? If you're writing a story about storytellers, then every word is from somebody who is aware that they're being listened to, and it becomes even more unreliable for that reason. I would love to ask Alex to talk a little bit about the world building and why she chose to build a world of storytellers in the way that she did in her forthcoming book. Oh, so I do get to talk about myself. <laughs> this is where you get to talk about yourself. I Tell them tell them about the chants. I love them so much. They're so soft and cuddly. They're not soft and cuddly. They're not really soft and cuddly. Lies. They're, they're such adorable, spiky little liars, and I love them all, and I want to adopt them. A chant is a wandering mendicant storyteller in this fantasy world that I am writing about in A Conspiracy of Truths. Originally, the storytellers were keepers of the genealogy. This was a tribe that had exclusively oral history. So they're priests, almost. Yes, they were absolutely priests. It was a religious function. And after events of the story happened, they left this land and went into a new land where their services were no longer required. And so they had to find a new purpose. They kept wandering. And they spread out across the world and... They tell these beautiful stories. They tell beautiful stories because as long as stories are remembered, no one ever really dies. It's about legacy and it's about narrative and it's about collecting as much of the world as possible and keeping it safe. 
and taking it to someone else and telling them about it because the more people know about a thing, the safer it is. I feel like it's almost somebody asks a chance who tells the story. They almost ask each of themselves that and their answer is me. Yes. That's what makes you a chant. That's what makes you possible makes it possible for you to be a chant. And what you said about the idea of more people holding onto a story is to keep it safe is fascinating because obviously that's the inherent inherent idea. The more people have hold of an idea, the more blurred it becomes, the, the less it looks like whatever the original was. And so it's a very it's a very interesting definition of safety. The safety of an idea is that you change it. It's almost disguising it. Everybody is changing it in their own way. The story itself survives, but it might be almost unrecognizable. Right. A chant is more okay with change than they are with oblivion. The chants, by and large, do not believe in writing things down. They believe exclusively in oral history, and part of this is tradition, just passed on from master to apprentice. But when you write something down, it becomes static, and you no longer have control over it, because someone can take it and read it and not understand what you said. But if you are telling it to them directly, you can make sure that they understand before you leave them. And that's why you had that that quote that Macy said at the beginning about it doesn't actually matter if it happened that way, as long as it's it's still true. It doesn't matter if it's happened that way, as long as it's truer than truth. Well, you're both misquoting it. It doesn't <laughs> matter if it happened that way in real life, as long as the story is good, as long as it's truer than truth. It was too long a quote from the beginning. <laughs> well, sorry. But I think that's, that's the point that we keep coming back to, is that stories are alive, and stories have to breathe, and you need to yeah. be conscious of whose lungs are inflating them. So this is a quote from Black Sails that sort of sums up that whole idea of it commenting on its own mm -hmm. narrative and its own sense of story. A story is true. A story is untrue. As time extends, it matters less and less. The stories we want to believe, those are the ones that survive, despite upheaval and transition and progress. Those are the stories that shape history. And then what does it matter if it was true when it was born? It's found truth in its maturity. Because what's it all for if it goes unremembered? It's the art that leaves the mark. But to leave it, it must transcend. It must speak for itself. It must be true. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. There's an amazing Terry Pratchett quote from the book Hogfather that we didn't get a chance to mention in the episode. I will paraphrase it. Humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. It's practice. You have to start out learning the little lies, tooth fairies, hogfathers, so that you can believe the big ones. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. Everything in the world is stories. Justice, mercy, duty, yes, but also manners and economics and hope. When you look into the night sky and see constellations instead of a scattering of faint distant suns separated by an endless great dark void, you're seeing a vessel as big as the universe that humans filled up to bursting with stories. Anyway, if you haven't yet heard the good news, we're planning the episode 10 extravaganza, where we will be taking questions, concerns, and debate topics from listeners like you. If you don't send us questions, Freya's going to have to monologue about kangaroos or wallabies or something, and Macy is going to try to explain 12-dimensional calculus to me. So please, please, listeners, for my sake, send us questions. Save me from my terrible fate. 
On the next episode, two weeks hence on May 9th, we'll take a break from these heavy topics to talk about our feelings and attempt to finally find an answer to the age-old question, Freya, what's your favorite romance novel? You can only pick one. And for the first time ever, we'll be joined by a special guest. So if you have a friend who's into that kind of thing, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. Finally, if you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And by the way, you mean a lot to me. I'm really glad you're here.